0: Welcome to First Up. This is Rāpare. That's Thursday, the 1st of December. Ko Nathan Coming up, China's former leader, Jiang Zemin, di- has died at the age of 96. We talk with our correspondents in the UK and Sweden Labour's Grant Robertson is here on dairy violence, raising the age of superannuation to 67, and the legal wrangle over a sick baby whose parents want him treated with unvaccinated blood. We'll hear from a medical ethicist on that, and more than 33,000 Sydney siders gets their COVID infringement fines thrown out thanks to this man.
1: It's ludicrous that it took going to the Supreme Court to get this whole ordeal even sorted out, because the average person, like, no one can afford those kind of legal fees.
0: Kia ora koutou. Welcome to First Up. Yes, uh, there are live football games happening at the Soccer Football World Cup. Uh, right now, the combined efforts of 44 sweaty humans have led to no goals in uh, 48 minutes worth of football in both games. But it is uh, nil all Australia, Denmark, nil all Tunisia, France. And that would actually mean Australia would go through. And uh, Barry Guy has been set the task of watching the football and we will have him later on in the programme. But we start in the United Kingdom right now. It's our friend Ellie Jay who's with us in London. Kia ora Ellie, how are you? Kia ora, Nathan,
2: good thank you. It started to get very cold here though.
0: Oh, OK, we'll get into that because uh, nowadays we just can't have medium weather. It's always very big or very, very cold. So we'll find out. But tell us about these strikes that are coming. A lot of strikes around the order of the uh, the day in the UK at the moment. What's the latest?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it does feel like that. And it's a combination of factors leading to these um, strikes, high inflation, the cost of living, wages that have been frozen for a while as well, and strong unions that are calling for um, better pay, better conditions, better job security, that kind of thing. So there are quite a few on at the moment, all planned for the next month. The RMT is one of the biggest um, rail unions here, and they've announced more strikes for before Christmas and into January across the rail network here, so that's across the whole country. Um, London buses as well are going to see strike days in the next couple of days and a few other bus operators across the country. On top of that, in the past few days, there have been postal strikes. Royal mail workers have gone on strike um, two days over the weekend, they're due to continue in the run-up to Christmas. And they've just announced that there will be a strike on Christmas Eve as well. So they're telling people to um, get their Christmas cards sent, get their parcels sent well in advance. And we're hearing a lot from kind of small businesses and businesses that rely on that system to function in the lead-up to Christmas. Um, Just last night too, we're hearing that ambulance workers will go on strike for the first time in 30 years. That includes paramedics, that includes the 999 call handlers, as well. And yesterday, the Royal College of Nurses said their members have voted to strike on the 15th and 20th. And they they make up about 100,000 nurses across the country who could be off wards next month. Also, I mean, there's more. The list goes there's on. More. There was a teacher strike uh, in, in Scotland for the first time ever. University lecturers and staff too went on strike. Sixth form college teachers on strike as well. It really does feel at the moment like it it's it's constant. I mean, RMT, they're the um, train union. They've blamed the government, saying negotiators, government negotiators, um, are making very little. Uh, their negotiators are making a lot of effort, and the government isn't really responding. Um, union uh, Unison, who res- represent ambulance workers, have said as well the government needs to act on wages. So from a lot of these unions what they're saying is our people are struggling and we've been left with no option but to but to strike
0: i think the only thing left open is a 24 hour fitness in birmingham and that's about it i i think everything else is on strike now the uh, the run into christmas is always interesting um particularly to there's a, what with the threat of bird flu around there in the uk what's up with the turkeys
2: Yes, so there is this outbreak of avian flu at the moment across Europe. The UK has been hit pretty hard by this. I mean, you can see signs up across the country about it in parks as well. So it's affecting all kinds of birds. And a few weeks ago, DEFRA, which is the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs here, they put out an advisory um, saying that all birds were to be kept inside. And this is to try and stop the spread. Uh, and it's come out today in in the news that half of all the free range turkeys in the uk that's over half a million turkeys have died of bird flu this year and i mean it's a huge amount it's a pretty horrifying amount as well this number this is the number of free range turkeys and that's because it's easier for avian flu to spread from wild birds to free range turkeys because they are out and about and so yesterday we heard uh, turkey farmers industry chiefs as well we were talking to a defra committee about this problem and it's the worst ever outbreak of avian flu in the UK that has been seen. I mean, the chief executive of the British Poultry Council was saying um, the usual number of free-range turkeys for Christmas is about 1.2 million, and half of those are directly affected. Um, The total UK production of turkeys is nearly 9 million in the run-up to Christmas as well. They're saying that Christmas supplies won't be affected. You can still buy turkeys, but they're more worried about the next couple of years and what it's going to mean, especially for free-range turkeys as well. But it's affecting all birds in the UK.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, um, so we've got lots of strikes, avian flu. But the Football World Cup, the Soccer Football World Cup, must be bringing joy to the people of England, I mean, through to the next round.
2: Yes, yeah, a little bit of joy. I mean, this was on most of the front pages this morning. A lot of TV screens as well last night. England were playing Wales, and that was the last match of the group stages for both teams. So England needed a draw to get through. Wales would have needed to win by four goals, uh, which they did not. I mean, England won Um, 3-0. I mean, I don't profess to be a football commentator. The first half of the match was a little bit slow. England had a lot of possession most of the time. Um, Some shots on goal, but nothing really uh, nothing really special and the second half is where it all it really got going there were two goals within 15 minutes um, a third one as well from Marcus Rashford at the end Chesney Hawks performed the one and only at half time, which wow. wasn't screened for some some reason uh, that did not appear on TV uh, but it did on Twitter and at the end I mean I think a lot of people even England supporters were, I'd say, sympathetic to the Wales team as well. It's the first time in, in over 60 years that Wales have appeared in the World Cup. The first time in World Cup finals matches that Wales and England have played each other. And the Welsh fans loved it. I mean, England will go through, they'll play Senegal on Sunday. But the at the end of the match, seeing the Welsh team stand in front of uh, the Red Wall, they called it, all the Welsh fans who who sang the national anthem to them. It was quite a lovely thing.
0: It is quite beautiful. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Ali J. And then Jack Grealish who was really one of the highlights of the Football World Cup. You've, his interviews are incredible. said, yeah, we won that, and it's great, and we're the best thing since sliced veg. Um, so keep your eyes out for Jack Grealish. His um, his replies are quite something. It is 12 and a half past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. As you may have heard in the headlines, China's former leader, Jiang Zemin, has died at the age of 96. Jiang was in uh, charge, or she came to power after the Tiananmen Square protest in 1990. His death comes as China sees some of its most serious protests since Tiananmen, with many demonstrating against COVID restrictions. The BBC's Stephen McDonnell has this report.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Jiang Zemin will be remembered as China's leader when his country rejoined the global community, a time of opening up and high-speed growth. He was also known as a power broker, economic reformer and something of an eccentric. After the bloody 1989 crackdown on protesters in and around Tiananmen Square, China was ostracised internationally. In the aftermath, Jiang Zemin was chosen as a compromise leader in the hope he'd unify hardliners and more liberal elements. He prioritized market forces, giving China the highest level of per capita growth of any major country. But political reforms were put to one side, and he's been criticized for the mass detention of Falun Gong practitioners who were seen as a threat to the party. He was at the helm for the Hong Kong handover, when China joined the World Trade Organization, and when it was awarded the 2008 Summer Olympics.
1: (laughs) Whether it be (laughs) playing
3: (laughs) ping pong, singing, or showing off his Hawaiian guitar skills, Jiang Zemin was a showman, in sharp contrast to the leaders who followed him.
4: Excited. (laughs) Too simple.
3: Huh?
4: Sometimes naive.
3: He famously gave Hong Kong journalists a public dressing down in English. And his images have become GIFs and emojis still flying around Chinese social media with a mixture of affection and hilarity.
0: Uh, if you agree, will
3: you? At a press conference with former US President Bill Clinton, there was debating I, I and lighthearted banter. It's hard one to one. imagine this happening now. Dictatorship. CBS News asked if he was running a developmental dictatorship. Am I wrong? Of course. This is big mistake, big mistake, of course. In his elderly years, there was still talk of him retaining a factional power base, as he survived rumour after rumour that he'd passed away. Yet his final public appearance in 2019 showed that even Jiang
0: Zemin had to slow down sometime.
1: Stephen
0: McDonnell with that report. quarter past five here at first up on rnz national with me nathan rarere news from europe travels down the phone line from anita purcell Sherland and joins us here on the show Kira doctor how are you
5: fine thank you Kira.
0: now um tell us about this a number of european politicians have been accused of conspiring with libya's post guard this would it's probably in relation to refugee boats yes
5: Yeah, a criminal complaint um, at the International Criminal Court is alleging that high-profile politicians conspired with Libya's Coast Guard to illegally push back refugees trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea into Europe. Now, these politicians include the EU's former foreign policy chief, Federica Mogherini, Italy's current and former interior ministers, and the current and former prime ministers of Malta. The complaint was lodged at The Hague by the German NGO, the European Centre for constitutional and human rights and in february 2017 the italian government struck a deal with libya by offering to fund equip and train its coast guard to intercept and take the boats back to libya where aid agencies said they suffered abuse and torture a day later the deal was approved by the european council
0: Okay, Um, let's let's talk about Belarus, because um, I see there, there the opposition leader who had been jailed has been taken from prison and moved to hospital. This all sounds quite quite an interesting story. What's happened there?
5: Well, we're talking about uh, Maria Kolesnikova. Now, according to a report, she was put into solitary confinement and it's not known why she needed surgery. However, the 40-year-old has been in custody since her arrest in September 2020. Um, At that time, the Belarusian security forces tried to deport Miss um, Kolesnikova to Ukraine after kidnapping her in Minsk, but she refused to leave the country, ripping up her passport at the border and she climbed out uh, of the car window now, her arrest came at a time of huge protest challenging the re-election of the country's president, Alexander Lukashenko. Last year, Ms. Kolesnikova was jailed for 11 years on charges of conspiring to seize power, create a hardline organisation and call for action that threatened the security of the state. And she says that the charges were trumped up.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll keep your eyes on that one. Now, earlier this week, I found out that Chebata bread is only 40 years old and was developed in response to the baguette, and the baguette has been given UNESCO, UNESCO cultural heritage status, like they did with Rewana bread here.
5: Yep, absolutely. It was announced on Monday, um, UNESCO announced that it added artisanal know-how and culture of baguette bread to its list of 600 other items, which includes things like, you know, the traditional tea making in China and the Korean Master's. Uh, a mask dance known as Talcum. Now, France produces some 16 million baguettes a day, but the famed loaf has been in decline in recent years as traditional bakeries struggle against the rise of things like large supermarkets and the increasing popularity of Salgo sourdough dough, I should say. Well, UNESCO says that um, including the baguette to its intangible heritage list celebrates the French way of life and that the baguette is a daily ritual, a structuring element of the meal, and synonymous with sharing and conviviality.
0: I reckon it's cartoons that were great for the marketing because, you know, there's always someone riding with baguettes poking out and they're just great. I know our youngest loves them every time she walks past them in the supermarket. Dad, baguette, please. Speaking of the kids, no, it's good I for have to the. I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of the children, let's, let's have a look there in the, in the Netherlands. I like this. They've introduced bike banks for children who can't afford bikes.
5: Yeah, cycling is a way of life in the Netherlands, but in a society geared towards the bicycle, there's concerns about families who can't afford bikes for their children. Now, the cost of living crisis has resulted in a surge of families turning to bike banks to make sure that their children are not left behind. In September of this year, inflation in the Netherlands hit an all-time high of 14.5%, while energy prices shot up 200%. The Royal Dutch Touring Club created the Bike Bank scheme which volunteers, in which volunteers refurbish discarded second-hand bikes into cycle path worthy condition and demand for the refurbished bikes is soaring. Last year, one group in Amsterdam received more than 400 requests for help and this year it has already had 1,200 applicants for second-hand bikes. Now, the Bike Bank project also doubles as a social enterprise, which offers teenagers who've dropped out of school the chance to learn a trade. And it also uses the skills and knowledge um, that retired people have to help the teenagers.
0: Wonderful. Thank you very much. Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland with all your news from Europe, and she's out of Sweden. 20 past 5. Nathan to here at First Up on RNZ National. Before the end of the programme, you're going to hear how 33,000 Sydney-siders got their COVID infringement fines thrown out thanks to one man and I'll tell you the birthday of possibly the most famous Hawaiian-born singer. Well, Local Democracy Reporting Programme time now this morning. I'm sad. Uh, I'm a bit sad here with this one. It's going to be our last time that we get to chat with uh, Felix de Marais from Rotorua, who's off to work at the Parliamentary Gallery. And I don't know if Felix will have time to look down to just these, these ordinary people on the radio. But uh, good morning, <laughs> Felix. How are you?
6: Good morning, my old friend,
0: Nato. Hey, now tell me about this. You're always uh, doing plenty of great reporting and and we will miss that, but uh, congratulations on on your new job. But um, just tell us, you've been covering the emergency housing situation in Rotorua and it sounds like you found that there might be an end in sight to this widespread use of motels for emergency housing. What's going on
6: there? Yes, maybe. So uh, what's going on is that the end could be in sight for the widespread use of motels for emergency housing in Brotirua. Um So the, the background on this is that um, our new Mayor, Rotorua Mayor, uh, Tanya Kapsul, she met with uh, the Housing Minister, Megan Woods, in October, shortly after Capsule um, was elected. Um, and uh, and that was along with some representatives from Te Arua and Ngāti Whakaui. And in that meeting, she told the Minister that she was really clear she wanted uh, an end to the mixed use of motels uh, in Rotorua. So where where... Uh, Emergency accommodation um, clients and visitors are uh, side by side in the same motel. She also wanted a uh, sinking lid policy, which, which would mean that for every person that left emergency housing in a motel, they would not be replaced. And she was also calling for better wraparound support for those people in the motels. And so out of this has come um, what's called a Rochirua Housing Accord, which uh, sounds very lofty. It basically means it's a, a proposed agreement between the government, Ewe and the council, um, and it was discussed in late November. So we don't actually know what is in it yet, uh, but the, there were some hints there in what Tanya has said she wants, and uh, the housing minister uh, has also told me that the proposed agreement builds off significant work already underway, and she's confident that she can substantially meet the mayor's objectives around motel use.
0: Now that's at least that is promising there. So that the sinking lid there, that housing yeah. accord, that that's fine. That you know, look, this is what we would like. et what we, you know, etc. And get that out there. But how likely is it to actually happen? Do you think?
6: Well, I mean, it's looking far more likely than it ever has. I would say so. We won't know for sure until we find out what was in that accord, and um, and indeed indeed if the council even agreed to it uh, late last month there in November. Um, But, you know, since this new council's come in, there have been a few more moves like this. And um, The big question, of course, is where the people in motels are actually going to live. Um, Because, of course, according to, uh, and I think I've mentioned this on your show before as well, um, the council commissioned an independent report at the end of last year, and it found that this town needs 10,000 homes by 2050. I mean, it even needs... Three thousand by the end of this month, so uh, it's a real uphill battle here for
0: everyone. I was going to go calm down. We've only just got jib back. Um, I don't know <laughs> if we've got, we got that, that many there. So, yeah, have they have they at least uh, fronted up or, or said you know this is a particular timeline that that we would like to have it done by?
7: Yeah, we
6: do have a bit of an idea on that. So, uh, the Meotamis capsule has said that an announcement is likely in December, and as I understand it, might be early December sometime. So. At the moment, what's happened is the council's discussed it uh, and confidential because it is still a negotiation between the government, the council and iwi. And uh, they have decided whether or not they like it. They've gone back to the government, let them know how they feel about it. And yeah, we should um, we should have a clearer picture sometime this month. Wonderful. Felix,
0: thank you very much. All the best uh, on the new gig uh, that you are. Felix uh, Damaray uh, with all the news out of Rotorua. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the first of December. Okay, now I think you're okay with the Christmas tree. I think Mariah Carey has been fully thawed, and uh, she will start doing the "All I Want for Christmas Is You." You can. You're not allowed to complain if you hear Snoopy's Christmas. That this is. We're here. Okay. Let's have a look at uh, birthdays of people. 1761, today was the birthday of Marie Tussaud, the founder of Madame Tussaud's Museum of Wax Figures. Obviously born in France, basically saved herself from the guillotine by going, but I'm really, really good at wax figures, look, look, look. And they went, oh, she is. Okay, save her head. So uh, that's how she managed to do it. Uh, Born on this day in 1933, the beautifully voiced Lou Rawls... You know, Lady Love. You'll never find another love like mine. Released more than sixty albums, sixty of them, I know, and sold more than forty million records. And uh, born on this day, in nineteen forty, Richard Pryor, one of the greatest stand-up comedians to ever do it. Okay, still with us, uh, Janelle Monet turns thirty-seven. Uh, she's a singer, a rapper, and also star of the uh, the movie Glass Onion. Uh, there you go. She's very good in it. And uh, I thought maybe, do we call her the most famous Pacific Island singer? of of all time probably Bette Midler was born in Hawaii I didn't know that. Uh, Also won Golden Globes as well, so happy Hawaiian birthday to you. Bette Miller, she blows out a cake with a pineapple on it. On this day in 1913, the world's first moving assembly line debuted, and it was at the Ford factory for making Model Ts. It reduced the time that it took to build one, from 12 hours down to two and a half hours, and then they further improved things and made it to uh, just uh, 93 minutes. Uh, He'd been inspired by watching Chicago freezing works, and the way that cows and Hogs were slaughtered, dressed and then packed using overhead trolleys that took the meat from worker to worker. So he went, I'm going to build cars like that. And on this day, in 1992, um, police from Denmark rushed to a video store, drew their weapons on an armed gunman. The gunman turned out to be a cardboard cutout of Denzel, Washington. And that happened on this day in 1992. that happened in a flat I lived in we had, a, uh, we had a Han Solo and I used to forget about it sometimes I would arrive home and do the just in the kitchen it's always good fun uh, joining us now from the business team it's Ananzaki Kyoto, how are you? Kia ora, very well. Happy December, first day of yeah, summer. Happy December to you. Yeah, well, that's right. First, the first day of summer. You know what's going to happen? I think we get a hailstorm next week, don't we, Imperial? <laughs> yeah, happens. Oh, no, no. Grapple. Yeah, I for. think this is when the grapple arrives in Auckland, and we end up googling what is grapple. Um, tell me about this though. Net migration forecast to pick up. What? What is this?
4: So uh, Kiwi Bank uh, reckons, so net migration, uh, they reckon it's going to pick up next year, uh, which isn't far away now, being December. They say this should be seen as a good thing uh, for businesses crying out for staff. Uh, So they've done some number crunching, and uh, they believe the tide has turned on the net annual outflows of migration. So uh, for the last wee while, we've had more people leave the country than those coming in. Now Kiwi Bank are forecasting uh, net outflows, uh, so the more people leaving the country, to be just uh, 8,000 in September compared to 17,000 at the start of the year when we had a lot more people leaving. And they're forecasting uh, significant uh, amounts of people coming in. They're forecasting inflows of over 39,000 people next year. Now this would be uh, mixed news for the Reserve Bank, uh, according to Kiwi Bank. Rising migration means uh, more workers available for businesses, like I said, uh, who have been not so subtle about telling us uh, about their shortages of workers. Uh, but on the flip side, uh, more migrants mean more demand, uh, which is generally inflationary, uh, which would affect the Reserve Bank's inflation battle. It would also place more pressure on the housing market as well as infrastructure. Uh, but overall, Kiwi Bank Chief Economist Jared Kerr reckons uh, increased migration is positive for the country. He says we do have an ageing population. Migrants tend to be a bit younger, uh, generally aged uh, 20 to 40. They have uh, a High participation rates in the workforce and are keen to work, so he
0: thinks that uh, this is a good thing overall for the economy. And they arrive at a time where it's 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 a good time to want to buy a house in Wellington. I understand. Well,
4: that's right. I mean, we've had. Uh, it depends on what way you look at it. I think uh, you know we've got interest rates rising as well, so it might uh, it might be it might be looking good on paper. Uh, let's just say. So we've had some numbers from. Uh, core logic on house values. Property values fell about half a percent in November uh, which is less than what it was in October and it's down uh, three percent from a year ago. This is nationwide and it's a mixed bag across our main centres. Wellington falling 15.9 percent annually. Uh, Auckland falling 3 percent Uh, Christchurch is growing. Uh, It's grown just under 5% over the past year, really bucking the trend. Now CoreLogic said there should be some caution because November sales took place before the market being hit by the latest round of pessimism. We had that huge interest rate hike uh, in uh, November. And they say housing affordability will still be a concern heading into 2023 because of those higher interest rates, which are really going to affect people's ability to service mortgages. So, not necessarily a win there.
0: Thank you very much, Ananzaki. There, you can hear more from the business team on Morning Reports today at 10 to 7. Let's see how the money markets are affecting the good old Kiwi dollar today. 61.93 US cents, 92.66 Australian cents, 60 euro cents, right on the dot there. 51.90 British pence, 4.39 yuan, and 86.58 Japanese yen. It's uh, 26 to 6. <laughs> With us now from the RNZ Specially Built World Cup bunker, it is Barry Guy in charge of all... Is, is in front of all the screens. He looks like a video referee. Kia ora Barry. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good, thank you. Nathan, how are you? I'm good. Set the scene for us. You've been watching these games that kicked off at 4am. Tunisia versus France, Australia, Denmark. What stories That's do you right. have to tell?
8: Yes, Group D. 15 minutes to go. Australia 1, Denmark nil. Tunisia oh. 1... France nil. So it started off uh, before these uh, final group matches in Group D that France were on top. Australia uh, were second, Denmark and Tunisia. And um, it's the same situation at the stage of who's going through. Tunisia uh, scored against France, who have rested about seven players, including um, Kylian Mbappe and Antoine Griezmann. They were both on the bench. Uh, for, uh, Tunisia scored in the second half, and that put them up into second spot. So they were going through, but then uh, Melbourne City striker Matthew Lecky, a great finish from him. And Australia um, started poorly against that uh, Denmark side, but they've grown into the game and um, are doing very well now. So Lecky scored. Australia won, Denmark nil. So that, as I say, the standings now has France and Australia going through, Tunisia and Denmark. Uh, missing out. So there's about fifteen minutes to go in that uh those two games. And um later this morning, uh we have uh Poland against Argentina, uh Lewandowski against Messi and then Saudi Arabia against Mexico. And you would look at that groupings and you'd think that well oh, Poland and Argentina are playing for top spot there. Um but there is every chance that Saudi Arabia, who had that win over Argentina in week one, could um, you know, uh, upset everything here with a victory over Mexico, and one of Poland and Argentina could miss out. So that's a, an exciting Group C coming up later this morning. So, um, as I say, at the moment I'm rooting for Australia. Yeah. Let's get, let's get those guys through to the next round at least. So it's pretty. Ama- it's exciting. pretty
0: amazing when there is. There'll be. I mean, if they get through, there'll be footage in, on the TV later on tonight of you know people in Sydney with scarves on, jumping up and down, and I can't believe it. So that's good too. Oi, yeah, That's that. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well,
8: especially they've got, um, you know, A-League players mm. competing very well there that could be, you know, fighting for contracts uh, coming up in Europe and that sort of thing. So uh, that's um, it's good for the A-League also. So um, come on, Australia.
0: Yeah, and how incredible to think, because I think, look, if Saudi Arabia win over Mexico, I've tried to do some maths here, and Poland and Argentina draw their game, Argentina's out. Yep. They're gone yep. from the football World Cup, yep. uh, which is quite incredible to do that. And Barry, can can I just get you again to do uh, take me back to it's Sunday mornings and I and I'm listening to the football scores on the radio. Can you just recap the scores that that we currently have there, Barry? World Cup Group D: Australia one, Denmark nil, Tunisia one, France nil. Oh beautiful. I was just waiting for the score from Scunthorpe. Thank you very much, Barry Guy, who will be uh, keeping an eye on all things football for us throughout the morning. Well, more than 33,000 Sydney residents fined for lockdown breaches have had their infringements overturned. Over 60,000 New South Wales residents were fined between one and $3,000 for COVID breaches, but the Supreme Court has ruled half of those were invalid because the notices did not provide a sufficiently detailed description of the offence. Leonard Powell spoke to the man behind the David and Goliath court case.
1: Sydney was in the middle of big COVID lockdown. A lot of rules couldn't really leave your house much, but for certain reasons, such as you know, outdoor exercise, or, like, just sitting in a park, that was okay.
9: That's Sydney man Rowan Pank, the freelance audio editor, who was in a lockdown bubble with his girlfriend, ventured out for a walk to the park on August 7th, 2021, when Sydney was in lockdown.
1: decided to have a sit-down for about 10 minutes, and a group of police officers came up to us and issued both of us with an on-the-spot $1,000 fine. I think the reasoning for, for that was that we weren't currently exercising. So I went back home and looked up the rules and the government had clarified that being in the park for the purposes of outdoor recreation, such as sitting down, was okay. So I thought that the fine was invalid.
9: Rowan contested his fine, but that review was thrown out.
1: I kind of forgot about the fine, just didn't end up paying it. And then it gets into the enforcement stage where a few months later, suddenly they're threatening to take away my driver's licence or garnish my wages, which is when I contacted the Redfern Legal Centre and found out that thousands more people had been dealing with similar situations of like unfairly given fines that didn't really have a reason.
9: So Rowan and the Redfern Legal Centre put the wheels in motion to clear his name and get the infringements wiped. Police had told Rowan he had breached a public health order because he was sitting down and not actively exercising at the park. But in the days after Rowan's ticket was issued... New South Wales Health said sitting to relax could be considered recreation. And on more than 30,000 tickets, the Redfern Legal Centre found the reasoning was unclear.
1: So many of them, the wording was really vague. So it was hard to even contest the fine because when you received it in the mail, you didn't even know what you'd done wrong. And there was also a lot of underage people that were fined, like 14, 15 year old kids receiving $5,000 fines. Like how are they expected to even pay that? That's just ridiculous.
9: A total of 62,128 COVID-related infringements were issued throughout New South Wales throughout the pandemic. The Supreme Court has now thrown out tens of thousands of fines, all thanks to Rowan.
1: It's ludicrous that it took going to the Supreme Court to get this whole ordeal even sorted out, because the average person, like, no one can afford those kind of legal fees. Yeah, it's fantastic news, and if anyone else can benefit from this, then I'm really glad and I'm happy that I could do something to uh, help people out and realise that, you know, if if the government's telling you that you owe the money and they're not telling you why, then, you know, there's resources you can look into and, and there is hope.
0: It is 19 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarere here at First Up on RNZ National. So, still to come, we'll look at this case uh, speaking to a medical ethicist about the legal wrangle over the sick baby whose parents want him treated with unvaccinated blood. And we'll also speak to Labour's deputy Grant Robertson on dairy violence and also this uh, idea that National has of raising the age of super to 67. Professionals of RNZ are up next. It's the morning report team. It's Guy on and Corin, and I guess in the, uh, the tone of the way that. Questions going now. Is that, is that going and current because, you know, a couple of guys similar age, similar interests, hanging out together? <laughs> well, we went to the same school as
10: well. <laughs> oh, you so make it. what you would have done. It.
0: Oh, tuck shop stories. <laughs> there
10: you go. He was a couple of years older than me, I would add, though. Right. You know.
0: Um but Did he even throw your bag up in a tree? I don't or anything think so. No, he, no. Not one so. of those? All anyway,
10: right, okay. Um, we uh, are watching the football, of course, this morning. Come on, Aussie. One yeah. nil up over Denmark. Who would have like that. Um, yeah, brilliant still, goal too, was it? Did you see that goal? Or
0: no, that? I, didn't. Oh. I didn't. I didn't. But, but we so had long, Barry on the job good,
10: for us. Very good. Um, let's get quickly onto the show. A lot to cover this morning. guy in fact, um, some may, uh, listeners who may have been up late last night would have uh, seen his documentary on the war on drugs, which was on TV1. Now, we'll be following up on that with some interviews with ministers about the current approach, whether a health approach would be better in New Zealand or whether this war on drugs, uh, I guess, um, legal approach that is used currently is the right way to go, so we'll have some more debate about that. We will, uh, of course, cover the issue, this uh, very sensitive issue around the baby who requires uh, blood transfusion for heart surgery who, Mm. and the mother, obviously, and the parents they want unvaccinated or so-called unvaccinated blood. Now, we'll talk to the lawyer of the mother about this, Uh, so that will be just after 7 o'clock this morning. This is obviously a very tricky story, a very sensitive story, but uh, nonetheless, uh, one that is um, in the court. Uh, so we'll cover that, cover off all the football. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, Auckland's efforts to uh, find savings. The Auckland Council, Maurice Williamson, uh, uh, there's been some concern around the committee that's been set up to do that, whether they have anything uh, to do. And we'll talk to Damien O'Callaghan, the Agriculture Minister, about field days, about uh, the ETS, about all sorts of stuff. Oh, like it's that all going it? farming. Goodness me. Go.
0: There we go. Thank you very much. Uh, Corinne Dan, who's uh, here with uh, Morning Report next. Yes, a a baby who desperately needs heart surgery will have to wait until at least next week when it's decided whether he's placed under the guardianship of the court. So the boy's parents are insisting that he only be treated with blood donated by someone who hasn't been vaccinated against COVID-19. Controversial lawyer Sue Gray acted on behalf of the parents at a hearing yesterday at, at Auckland's High Court, which was picking by anti-vaccination protesters. I asked Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson how we've arrived at this place where people believe that someone who's had a vaccine is somehow contaminated.
11: Yeah, obviously on the specifics of the case, it is before the court, so I'll, I'll have limits to what I can say. But more generally, um, this is a product of the misinformation and disinformation that's out there and it only takes a few minutes on Facebook or, or looking around the internet to realise that some ridiculous theories have got hold of some people. It's a real tragedy, and we've just got to make sure that we continually get proper scientific-backed information out for people. As I say, I'm not really in a position to comment on the specifics of this case, but one of the great casualties of COVID has been the truth, and you know we have to work very, very hard to ensure that people have good quality information and, and don't fall down rabbit holes.
0: I mean, I see that the baby desperately needs surgery, but is going to need for the, the High Court, as you said, to hear the full case next week before doctors can do what they need. That just seems too slow. Like, what if the decision needed is needed to be made in a matter of hours to save this baby's life? I would presume in
11: circumstances such as that that the health authorities would make that clear to the court. I, I don't I'm not familiar with the with the timings in this particular instance. It is very rare that a case like this ends up before the courts. For the most part, parents who might hold different views from the clinicians and doctors who are around them, those matters are able to be resolved one way or the other. um it's very rare to see a case end up before the court. But ultimately, once it gets into the court system, that is totally in the hands of judges. But I'd certainly hope that in any situation, if there was a kind of a matter of hours type timeline, that that would be made clear to the judge when they were making their decision. OK.
0: Uh, let's let's talk dairy. So Matthew, one of our journalists, he visited a dairy this week. It's got 21 cameras, a cage surrounding the till area. It's got prison bars on the windows and doors multiple buttons to activate fog cannons. Is this what all dairies are going to need to look like now?
11: Look, it's it's a reality that if very sadly over the years, and it does go back a few years now, we've seen burglaries within dairies more recently, obviously the ram raids, which are starting to come down in terms of number. But there's a feeling of vulnerability among the community of people who work in, in these retail outlets, particularly dairies. And so therefore they're going to want to protect themselves and protect them and their families' livelihoods. And so it is a very sad reality that these kinds of measures are now being taken. As you know, we've come forward with some more resources to support more people to be able to give themselves that peace of mind and in the end nobody should go to work being fearful that they won't come home and so we've got to do what we need to do it's not just about putting in um, measures inside dairies it's also getting to the root causes of the problems as well but in order to provide that reassurance having those kinds of security measures available is important
0: You, you don't feel the government's been too slow getting support to these owners I don't. I mean, we've had over a thousand
11: fog cannons that have gone in in recent times. And when we came into government, I'd actually remember it was one of the very early decisions we had to make was to change the criteria so that more people could access the fog cannons. It was pretty tight criteria the previous national government put in place. We expanded that. Obviously, we've then had the ram raid issues, and so we've got the process in place for the installation of bollards and other security measures. And then this week, we've announced you know, ramping up resources for both of that, plus a, a $4,000 effectively grant that, that retailers can get to install the security measures they think they need. We've been moving with this issue, it was burglaries for a while, then it's ram raids. Now perhaps there's a concern again about burglaries, so we're trying to make sure that the system can adapt to be able to provide these people the support that they want and need.
0: Mm. Let's look at something different here. National's policy on superannuation, they've said they'd quite like to get to that to raise the superannuation age to 67. What, What do you make of that?
11: Well, that's not Labor's policy. In the past, we have had, going back a decade or more, we did have a policy to do that. But the more work that I've done on that issue and the more I've looked closely at it, the more I'm convinced that we can and should keep the age at 65 there are particular groups of people who struggle in their working life to even make 65 and here I'm thinking about people in manual labour jobs we also know that there are life expectancy issues with with some populations we know that Māori and Pacific populations are less likely to get the full benefit of superannuation so our view is it's a, it's a cost but it's a cost that's about people having dignity in retirement what disappointed me about Mr Luxon is he just seemed to brush off those concerns and, and I think his priorities are all the wrong way around, he still really does want to give a tax cut to to wealthy people but, but take away a bit of a lifeline for some people who don't have the resources of their own to get through retirement, so I think his comments are pretty misguided here. Are
0: you surprised that he went on an interview with Morning Report and didn't actually know how much the superannuation payment is each week?
11: Well, you would have thought he would have prepared for that. Sometimes it's not easy to remember the exact dollar number of these things. But if you're going to go on and and talk about an issue like superannuation, then you should be prepared for that. Certainly when you're in government, I can tell you that it's something that comes up a lot because it's still not a huge amount of money. And a lot of people would like to see it be more. I think it's increased about 18 since we've been in office and that's still tough to get going on. It was it was originally set as a rate many, many years ago on the basis that people would, would have a mortgage-free home and, of course, that's not the circumstances for all retirees anymore either. So we look to see how we can increase that. We obviously brought the winter energy payment in that goes to um, retired folks as well. So we're doing our best to try and look after people, but um, the amounts of money involved here are large government, but relatively small at an individual level.
0: Let's just get out of here on work perks. I see that Mr Luxon is essentially charging taxpayers $45,000 a year through renting his own electorate office back to Parliament. However, on your side of the, the, the thing here, Tracy McClellan, Jenny Silesa, uh, Nanaya Mahuta, although I see the Minister Mahuta's case it's owned by a trust, so she doesn't actually direct, um, directly benefit off that. Off this, it doesn't look like a good mm. optic. Will you be telling them off?
11: Uh, look, this is it is something that's within the rules and each MP has to judge for themselves how that works. My understanding of the two Labour MPs is that the facilities are rented off the party, they're not rented off the individual MP. So yes, I accept that there's an indirect benefit there to them in the sense that the Labour Party benefits. If I'm recalling correctly, Mr Luxon himself owns the property and so that's a, a slight distinction. The reality is they are you know, within the rules and each person has to judge whether or not that sits well with them. As I say, I think Mr. Luxon's circumstance might be different again the Labour MPs.
0: It's Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. We just wanted to have a, a closer look there at the story there, as you've heard uh, throughout the news in the programme this morning about the baby whose parents won't consent to blood being used in a in surgery he requires unless it's taken from someone who's had the uh, who hasn't, sorry I should say, had the COVID nineteen vaccine. Joining us now is Dr. Monique Jonas, who's an ethical theorist, a specialized in healthcare ethics and who's based at the School of Population Health at the University of Auckland. Thank you very much for joining us, Doctor. What what considerations will the court need to take into account here?
7: Well, when the court looks at cases like this, they really focus specifically on the child's best interests. So they won't be looking at the parents' best interests, they will be looking at what's best for the child. And they, they don't just look at the child's uh, clinical interests, what's good for their health. They also look at um, the child's relational interests, their interests in having their relationships with their families and, and, and their emotional interests and their developmental interests more generally. So it, it's, a, it, it's, it's quite a narrow view that the, the um, courts take just on what's good for the child.
0: Okay. And they always look for precedent in cases. Is there precedent for, for a case like this?
7: Well, I haven't seen a case come through the New Zealand courts involving um, COVID and refusal of vaccinations and refusal of um, blood transfusions or a desire to kind of control Um, how those are given. But there is precedent around refusal of blood transfusions for children. And that really uh, comes from refusal for religious grounds. And so there's been a number of cases along those lines. Uh, So I'm expecting that the courts will see this case in the context of those precedent cases. Just
0: wondering here. While we wait for the the High Court, because they won't get to hear this case until next week, what if this child, who could die in a matter of hours, uh, you, mm. you know, gets to a very serious case? What will happen there?
7: I mean, if it if it came to be the case that the um, surgery had to be given urgently before a court hearing could happen, and court hearings can happen very very urgently if necessary. Um, then then I expect that the clinicians would do what they regarded to be in the best interest of the child. And, you know, we do do that sometimes. So, for instance, if... Um, You know, in in the context of a road traffic accident, when treatment has to be given um, or the child will die, then uh, the clinicians do have the authority to make those decisions in the moment. But of course, they don't want to do that or act outside um, the parents' views without the permission of the courts.
0: It sounds like a highly emotional case too. This, This takes some fortitude, doesn't it, from the courts?
7: Well, it does. I mean, you know, in New Zealand, in our, in our system, I think that clinicians work really hard to try to sustain good relationships with families so that things don't end up in court. Um, and so, yeah, we don't have a ton of cases along these lines because of that. And I think that's a really good thing about our system. But it does raise lo- lots of emotions. And of course, for the family, it's going to be.
0: A really hard time. Mm, it will, uh, Dr. Monique Jonas. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, Morning report will cover this case as well with Guyon and Corin. Uh, from all of us here at First Up, uh, thank you very much for your patronage today. I hope you have a wonderful day, and we will be back in your ears, Apopo.